Wild Lives by Phonographic. Hey, I'm Rochelle and welcome to the Wild Lives podcast. In a sec, I'm going to intro you to Miranda Vanderlind, who is an amazing whale naturalist and marine biologist. She was born in Holland and then grew up in New Zealand, and that's where she got her master's degree in marine science. She then took that to the Azores, where she worked alongside sperm whales for nine years. She's learnt so much about them and has some amazing stories, and I can't wait to pick her brain. But before we do that, let's take a quick visit to the Azores to get a feel for that marine environment. Sprawling some 600 kilometres between North America and Portugal, the Azores Archipelago is a Portuguese territory that not only includes nine volcanic islands, it's also one of the world's most important habitats for both whales and dolphins. Here, around 25 species of cetacean can be found at different times of year, including rissos, striped and Atlantic spotted dolphins, along with migrating baleen whales such as blue, fin and sei whales. The area is also a hotspot for sperm whales, which were historically hunted for their blubber, oil and meat. These are the world's largest toothed predators, and they have the largest brain in the animal kingdom, which makes sense as the average male can grow to around 18 metres and weigh in at around 57 tonnes. They're also known for their ambergris, which is kind of like their vomit. It's long been coveted by the perfume industry, where it's used as a musky base. Although it's illegal to sell in Australia, a single gram of ambergris can be worth several thousands of dollars overseas, with a one and a half kilo ball selling for around $100,000. But sperm whales are so much more than the sum of their large and fragrant parts. These are incredible animals with complex social structures and intriguing behaviours. As today's guest, Miranda Vanderlind knows only too well. Hey, Miranda, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. You're welcome. First up, tell us about you. How did you end up working with sperm whales in Portugal? All right, well, I began actually working with sperm whales first in New Zealand. So I studied in New Zealand, and when I was doing my postgraduate research, I was looking for a topic to study. I was always interested in dolphins and whales, like a lot of girls are at a young age. And I was lucky to land a position um, working on sperm whales in New Zealand in the Kaikoura Canyon, where you get the male sperm whales. So I was always fascinated by the idea of seeing the females and the young ones, because in New Zealand you get the males only. The males are found in colder waters, the females and calves in warmer waters. So I heard about the Azores Islands off the coast of Portugal, and I thought, well, I have to go and have a look. And I was lucky to land myself a position as the head guide and research coordinator for a whale-watching company in the Azores. Mm. Do you remember the very first time you saw a sperm whale up close? Tell us the story. I do remember. So it was in New Zealand when I was doing the research over there. So my first field season was in 2006. It was in the winter time. So it was the first day that I was out on the water and we were tracking a sperm whale. So you track them by listening to them on a hydrophone, like oh. an underwater microphone. So the whale was underwater. It was diving. And when we were expecting the whale to surface, I was told to look for the blow. So we're all looking around and I wasn't sure exactly what a blow should look like, but I was quite proud that I spotted the blow next to the boat, not too far away. And uh, yeah, that was my first sperm whale. And my first impression was it looked kind of weird, <laughs> not really pretty, not what I expected of a whale. 
So sperm whales are quite wrinkly. They're quite unsymmetrical. They're not smooth like you imagine most whales to be. So, yeah, it looks like they're kind of covered in cellulite. Their blowhole is on their left side, so they're kind of a little bit crooked when you see them from behind. They're really weird-looking whales. But I was really impressed once I saw the tail. So when they go on a deep dive, they raise the tail slowly, very high up in the air. So I was impressed. Why are they called sperm whales? <laughs> so we have the whalers to thank for that. When they first discovered sperm whales, when they started hunting them, they found a kind of creamy white substance in their heads and they thought it looked like sperm. I'm not sure if they really thought it was sperm, but yeah, they called that substance spermaceti, which females have as well, and it's in their forehead, so of course it's not sperm. It's actually a special oil that the whales have, um, which they use to focus and amplify the sounds that they make in their head. Ah, that's a bit creepy of them to have thought that, but anyway, that's what you get for whaling in the early days. <laughs> Tell us about this. Yep, definitely. <laughs> Tell us about the sperm whales of the Azores. How many are there and why are they there? So the sperm whales of the Azores are spread out across a very large area. There are nine islands and uh, we don't know exactly how many there are, but we believe somewhere around 3,000 individuals will use the area. They can be seen year-round, although we don't see the same individuals all year. They do come and go. You get groups coming into and out of the region so we see mostly the females and the young ones year-round, so the females with their calves and juveniles. The males will come and go, the mature males. They don't stay long. They spend more time in colder waters, so in higher latitudes. Um, and we can see them both for feeding and for breeding purposes. So the Azores Islands are surrounded by very, very deep waters. It's volcanic islands, and you have very deep water close to shore, so kind of steep drop-offs, which are ideal hunting grounds for sperm whales. Sperm whales hunt squid in deep water where you get these kind of steep drop-offs and that's what you have around the Azores. So there's plenty of food for them and also warm water for the calves. So the Azores Islands are influenced by the Gulf Stream. The water is warmer than you would expect for that latitude, so the water is nice and warm, which is ideal for the females to give birth to their calves. It's kind of like the perfect place for them, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. How many groups have you identified in the area and how do you tell them apart? So sperm whales can be told apart traditionally by their tail or their flukes when they dive. So they will raise it up in the air and we will take a photograph and identify the individuals from usually the edge of the tail. So it's like a fingerprint. Uh, but in my research, I also proved that you can identify whales by looking at their body marks as well. So they don't always show the tail, especially the younger ones that are still learning how to do the deep dives. And uh, based on this research, I was able to identify 393 individuals just around one of the nine islands of the Azores based on eight years of data. And out of those 393 individuals, I was able to classify them into groups or what we call social units based on individuals being repeatedly seen together. So I identified 12 of these social units. What does the average pod look like in those social units? So the average for the Azores is around six individuals in one of these social units. It does vary across different parts of the world. So in some areas, units are larger. In some areas, it's smaller. And in the Azores, it's one of these areas where the units are a bit smaller. So an average of six individuals. The largest unit I identified included 13 members. Mm. And these units are made up of females and their young, so calves and juveniles. So uh, they are matriarchs that lead the, the groups. 
so adult females that lead the groups. And uh, the males, they are completely separate. The mature males are completely separate from the females. So once the male will reach his teens, he will leave the, the family unit or the social unit and he will become more and more solitary with time. Young males will form kind of loose bachelor groups for a period of time, but the older and larger they get, the more solitary they become. So the units are basically just made up of these females and young. It's so interesting. Like the more I learn about wildlife, the more I learn that the young guys kind of just hang out together as bachelors and then go off and become solo guys, but the ladies and their families (laughs) (laughs) all kind of stick together. Yeah. But you did mention Yeah, they do. They do. You mentioned that you've got the matriarch system. I read somewhere that the females even help each other with their calves in sperm whale pods. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So that definitely happens. So sperm whales are said to be the most social of all the great whales. And the bond between the mother and calf especially is very strong. So they have actually the longest pregnancy of all the whales. The pregnancy is around 14 months, but perhaps up to 18 months. And then the breastfeeding as well. It's usually several years of breastfeeding, although milk has been found in the stomach of whales or a whale that was 12 to 13 years old. So it's a really, really strong bond. And research has shown that it's not only the mother that is breastfeeding the young, so other females from that unit can also take on that role. And it's been shown, for example, in the West Atlantic that it's not always closely related individuals that will take on that role of breastfeeding other females young And they babysit as well, of course. So when the mother has to go down on a deep feeding dive, usually these dives are around 45 minutes at a time, other females from the group will often stay with the young one. So, yeah, it's definitely really interesting. It's like a a creche culture, isn't it? Like a nursery kind of culture. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we do call them nursery groups, so it's very much like that. Mm. Researchers also found that they not only have their own culture in these pods, they also pass this culture from one generation to the next. Can you tell us a bit about that? Exactly. So sperm males do have culture. We are starting to understand that more and more animals actually have what we refer to as culture. So it's kind of a growing topic of interest, especially with sperm males, with being such social animals. Um, We're starting to just kind of scratch the surface of what it means for animals. So we define culture for animals as learned behaviors or traditions that they pass on socially to the next generation. So the information is not passed on through genetics, for example, um, and it's not also geographically related. Basically, they are teaching their young, for example, how to hunt in different parts of the world or even sometimes overlapping uh, what we call clans do things in different ways, so they hunt in different ways, they will use the area in different ways, their patterns of babysitting or having preferred babysitters is different for different uh, clans as well, and even the sounds that they create are different for these different, what we call different vocal clans, so it's like they speak different languages, they have different patterns of clicks that they produce, so it's definitely really interesting and we're only just beginning to understand it. It's also really important because culture with animals is very important in protecting uh, populations. So, for example, sperm males in the Mediterranean and off the coast of Dominica are actually declining, unfortunately. So if we would lose those whales, it's actually whole cultures that are being lost and they may not be able to be replaced. You mentioned a moment ago about their clicking Tell us a bit about how they vocalize and communicate with each other. Is it all vocals and clicking or is there body language and other physical behaviors as well? It is mostly clicking. They will sometimes use 
kind of visual body language as well. So they can use body postures, for example. When they're at the surface, they can be very tactile as well. But once they are in deeper waters or when they're more spread out from each other or the water is murky, for example, then they're, of course, not able to see each other. So then they are using sound. They create different types of sounds. So first of all, they can create sounds just by uh, jumping out of the water and landing on the water surface, what we call breaching or lobtailing, slapping their tails on the water surface. So that sound will travel very far. So it can be a way to signal to each other. And uh, mostly they are creating these clicking sounds that I mentioned. So the clicking sounds, it sounds very much like clicking your fingers or a metronome. These sounds are made in the head of the whale, so they actually don't come out of the, the mouth like the way that we speak. So it's quite interesting. They produce these clicks in their head by pushing kind of air through their nasal passages. And this is where that spermaceti oil in their head comes in as well. So basically the sound comes out of the forehead of the whale and they can create different patterns of clicks to communicate with each other. It sounds very much like, uh, like Morse code. And as I mentioned earlier, in different parts of the world, they have these kind of different patterns that they will use. So it's like different languages, basically. We call it coders. Their clicks are also used to find their food. So just like a, a boat sounder would work, for example, they can gauge the distance to an object or to the seafloor, so not only their food. And this is what we call echolocation. So they locate things by echo. Is that how they hunt? They mainly eat octopus and squid, but do they have any interesting hunting behaviours or techniques that you can tell us about? Yes, we definitely know that they hunt by creating these sounds and hearing the echoes that return to know where the food is. We don't know exactly how they actually go about capturing their food, so it's, it's a bit of a mystery because they hunt mostly in very deep water, usually at least 500 metres deep, but oh. we know they can go 1,000, 2,000 metres plus. So at these kind of dips, it's pitch black, it's completely dark, and it's why they will use the sounds to, to find their food. And because it's in such deep water, we don't actually know exactly how it happens. There have been some theories over time, for example, that they will use their sounds, which are very powerful, to stun their prey, or they maybe perhaps use their wide bottom jaw to kind of attract the squid, which are attracted to bioluminescence. But none of these theories have actually been proven one interesting thing that I have seen, actually, when I was working in New Zealand is I saw sperm whales sometimes surface feeding. So that's really unusual for sperm whales who normally feed at great depth. So there's been a couple of times that we saw a sperm whale kind of going around at the surface, going very quickly, going in, in circles, and we were listening on the hydrophone at the same time. So we heard the sperm whale clicking. We heard it increasing the speed of the clicks, which means it's getting closer to the prey, getting updated information, so clicking very, very fast. And then we saw the sperm whale coming up vertically with its head out of the water with the mouth open and grabbing a fish in its mouth. So I was lucky to see that a couple of times. That would have been amazing. They're actually known for their deep dives and they can stay underwater for two hours by slowing down their heartbeat. I mean, two hours is a long stretch. It's usually like 45 minutes. But, <laughs> but this must have made it pretty hard to study them from a boat. Were you in a boat the whole time or were you in the water with them? I was mostly in a boat, so yeah, there's definitely a lot of waiting time involved, a lot of bobbing up and down, waiting for a whale to surface. So we see just a really small fraction of their lives when they're at the surface, basically. So mostly we study sperm whales while they're underwater. We can study them by listening to them. So this is where the hydrophone comes in, so it's an underwater microphone. We listen to their clicks to try to figure out what they're doing, where they are. We can even gauge the the size of a whale just by the, the clicks, for example. So we can learn quite a bit just from that, but there are still definitely a lot of uh, mysteries. 
I have been lucky also in the Azores to actually go free diving with them. So that was only allowed under permits for scientific research, for example, or professional photography. Mm. So I have been able to observe some pretty interesting things in this way as well. So, for example, I've seen a, a juvenile whale that was nursing or attempting to nurse. <laughs> and I was lucky to see seven whales also sleeping just near the surface. And they were actually kind of floating vertically, bobbing up and down like corks in the water. So that was really cool to see. That's pretty awesome. I can't even imagine. It would have been so surreal to see that. <laughs> During your time in the area, you've come to know several of the individual whales. You've got to have a favorite or two or three. Tell us about them. I definitely have a favorite, um, well, a favorite unit, actually. So it was a unit that we refer to as the red unit. So we used different colors to kind of distinguish between them. This was the unit that we saw the most while I was working there. So I got to know the individuals really well. So the unit includes 13 members. And uh, we often saw that certain members had kind of preferred companions. So we would often see just small clusters of certain units or certain unit members together. So it was quite interesting when you would come across one of these whales, I would be able to identify it and I would already know who would be most likely in the area just based on those kind of preferred well, friendships almost. They definitely became my favorite unit. There was one whale in particular who we called Orca. She had kind of like a saddle patch on her back, a gray saddle patch, which looks like that of an Orca killer whale. She was our most sighted female sperm whale. We saw her more than 70 times in the last nine years that I was working there. So... I got to know her pretty well. You could see in an instant that it was her just from that kind of patch on her back. So uh, she was first seen back in 2003, actually. I managed to dig up uh, an old photo of her. So, yeah, she was definitely my favorite. She had some interesting behaviors as well. So she was often very comfortable around the boats, and she would sometimes even kind of come towards us and have a look at us. That's pretty amazing, that kind of interaction, isn't it? What's been the most mind-blowing thing? I mean, you've studied these guys for a long time, but there's got to be a moment where you've had your mind blown by them. What has been the most crazy thing you've learned about them? I think as soon as I learned about their diving capabilities, I was always quite fascinated by that. So it's just really, really extreme. The depths that they can dive to and the amount of time that they can stay underwater, it's, it's really fascinating. So as you were saying earlier, they can dive more than two hours. The average is 45 minutes, which even that is just amazing. I can barely hold my breath for a minute. So <laughs> it is really amazing. They're mammals. They have lungs. So yeah, they hold their breath for incredible amounts of time. And just the depths that they go to, at least 2,000 meters, perhaps 3,000 meters. We don't know. Just the pressure that they are under when they go into these depths. It's just really fascinating. Okay, so think back to your favorite day of all time with the sperm whales in the Azores. How did it all play out? Well, I can definitely remember my favorite day with sperm whales in the Azores. So it was back in 2016 in, uh, in June. So we were out on a, a special trip that was actually for underwater photography. So we had just two passengers on board with us. So the skipper, myself, and two passengers. It was actually a bit of a slow start to the day. So we were searching for quite a while and it took us a while to find sperm whales, but then suddenly they started appearing. We saw one, two, three, and just a lot of whales started coming into the area and kind of grouping up together. I tried to do a surface count. It was really difficult to keep up. I think there were probably about 50 whales oh. in the area, and yeah, about 30 of them were just near our boat, within 50 meters of our boat. So they started becoming really active. It was quite unusual. I'd never seen the whales so active. So they were kind of rolling around on the surface, all in contact with each other, heads and tails out of the water, open jaws. They were breathing very, very loud. So they were just expelling a lot of energy. 
so I was just documenting everything, filming, watching. We were just fascinated. The um, professional photographers were not able to get into the water. It was just too physical. All of a sudden, we saw blood in the water. So we think, oh, what's going on? We were watching for a bit longer. We saw more blood appearing around the wells. Then we realized that there was a female that was in labor. And within a few minutes, we were actually able to see that newborn whale. So we were just amazed, really, really amazed. So we stayed with the whales for a bit longer. Just when we were thinking of leaving, they started becoming active again. So it was the same thing all over again, a lot of activity. And the little one, that newborn whale, was right in the middle of it all. So... We were a little bit worried because we saw more blood appearing and I thought, oh God, that little one has been crushed or something or they they did something to the baby. But then we saw a second newborn whale. So within 20 minutes of each other, we'd seen two sperm whales being born. It was a third one that was also quite young as well that we'd seen two days ago that was also still newborn. It was still quite wrinkly with the tail and the dorsal fin bent over. So we had actually three very young whales in that group and two of them we had actually seen being born so that was just really really amazing i think nothing will top that day i don't think anything could possibly top that day that is insane (laughs) so were they all from different mums had all come together to give birth so three different mums it was from different mums it was yeah so sperm whales or any whales and dolphins really normally will have one calf each time it's quite unusual for twins to be born quite often they won't make it so they were from different mums and actually those two mums from those two births from that day came and presented those newborn whales to our boat. So they actually came and sort of pushed them towards our boat as if they were presenting them to us for the first time. I have actual goosebumps. I can't even. Like, <laughs> that is amazing. You're <laughs> so lucky. I'm really jealous. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing your stories today, Miranda. It's been awesome to chat to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Isn't she a gem? She's awesome. You also have to check out some of her photos. You can find them on mirandavandalin.blogspot.com. I'll put the link straight up on phonographic.com so you can click straight through. While you're there, check out some of the other podcasts and I'll catch you next time. Wild Lives by Phonographic. Check out our wildlife photo gallery at phonographic.com and on Instagram at phonographic. Mm.